What does motion sound like? With Kizik Hands Free Shoes, it sounds a little something like this. Experience the magic of motion. Get a free pair of socks with your first order at kizik.com slash socks. And now, from the University of Chicago Institute of Politics and CNN, The Axe Files, with your host, David Axelrod. I first uh, met Luis Gutierrez in 1984. He drove up to a meeting we had at a little luncheonette across the street from City Hall in Chicago, parked the cab that he was driving, and sat down to talk to me about his ward committeeman race, Democratic ward committeeman race against Congressman Dan Rostenkowski, who was a great power in Washington and a great power in Chicago. He got clobbered in that race, but came back and got elected in a sort of momentous uh, race in Chicago for the city council that tilted the city council in favor of the f- city's first black mayor, Harold Washington. And years later, he went to Congress, where he's become a ubiquitous presence on Spanish language television and the leading spokesperson in the House on the issue of immigration reform. Uh, he's passionate and funny uh, and disarming. Uh, as you will hear. Luis Gutierrez, good to be with you, always. Thank you, David, uh, for we've inviting been me. known each other for a very long time. A long time. time. <laughs> uh, I could tell by the posters on your wall. Yeah, exactly. They go back to through <laughs> Chicago political history yes, they here. Do. So Harold Washington is when you and I met. Yes. <laughs> you. Uh, but I want to talk about before that, because you're like a ubiquitous presence on Spanish language media. Okay, yeah. That's... But uh, but but you weren't speaking Spanish much when you were a kid here in Chicago. No. So so in Chicago we had the classic bilingual household. My parents only spoke Spanish, and I responded to them in English, and they understood my English. I understood their Spanish, and in that sense we were bilingual. But uh, unfortunately, at some point, you have to say something <laughs> in Spanish. And just because you've heard it for 15 years, does it mean you can speak it? And you were in a what, Catholic school here? Or? I was in it. So I went, to, I, went to, um, I went to public school through sixth grade. And my parents did what a lot of parents do when you misbehave in sixth grade. Seventh, eighth grade. This is uh, hard for me to believe that you would yeah, be misbehaving. Right. Yeah, but, yeah. It's, good. it's a good thing they can't see the smile <laughs> and the smirk on your face. Um, yeah, so in seventh, eighth grade, I was misbehaving in sixth grade. So I went to uh, St. Michael's High School, not far from here. Mm-hmm. Uh, grade school and high school. Mm-hmm. And then you went back to Puerto Rico with your family. Your family went back to Puerto Rico. For you, it was all new. It was very new. So we moved to the countryside. It was very rural. Sugarcane everywhere, um, coffee, very rural, very agricultural. I was a city kid from Chicago, cement, right, asphalt kid. Uh, there was one radio station. I learned to like the music because it was, you know, people have to understand this was before MTV and radio and FM and, and, and all of the technology today that provides you with music and entertainment and news. So it was it's very different. I, I got shut off. So I would say that those, so my two years of high school, my first two years of college at the University of Puerto Rico, there's a lot of things that happen that there is a void, right? Because there's like a history of the United States and things that happened here that I didn't, it wasn't in the news. It wasn't part of what we lived. So it was very hard. So I Yeah, I mean, back. I'm just trying to imagine the for you, uh, as a young kid, sort of, I, I read somewhere that you said uh, that you, you know, in Chicago you faced certain. Right. You were in a school that was probably predominantly white. White. Right? It was predominantly white. So you know, it, it was as both as I look at the history. So in 1953, so I'm born in 53. So I'm born when separate but equal is the law of the land, right? And in Chicago, you knew, with I mean, Chicago was different, right? The, 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 there were swimming pools you knew not to go to, 
There were play lots you knew not to go play baseball. And there were lines of demarcation streets that you knew not to cross. And in that sense, it was separate but equal, right? In the sense that you lived on mm-hmm. one part of the of the line, even in a city like Chicago. And Chicago's always been very, back then, hyper-segregated. Uh, uh, mm-hmm. um, so I, I lived in Lincoln Park when Lincoln Park was Puerto Rican. Uh, and the Young Lords were on Armitage Avenue, and they had the daycare center and free food and free health care. This is the 60s, right? Um, and I had the hippies on Wall Street uh, with all their psychedelics going on. This is so- all now totally gentrified, <laughs> right. like real estate that nobody can afford. That nobody can afford. Right. And so that was the Lincoln Park that I grew up in. So I like to say, in synthesis, it was... I was always too Puerto Rican to be American in Chicago. And then when I got to the island of Puerto Rico, I was like the gringo who was too American to ever be Puerto Rican. So it's tough. You know, it is really difficult when you're 15 years old to confront that kind of shock and not have – probably a lot of listeners remember, you know, when you were in first grade, you probably still – some of us had friends through college. I mean, or through high school. Imagine all your first grade friends, second grade, all your friends that you've established in your in your neighborhood, gone. So all your infrastructure is gone. And then there's all this hostility towards you. Because the only thing the Puerto Ricans really understood about us, their fellow Puerto Ricans on their diaspora on the in the United States, was from West Side Story. So they thought, pretty in a moment, I'd pull out a knife <laughs> uh, and I'd have some black sneakers. Uh, you know, Unfortunately, that was then. This is now. now. It's a very different now. Now I go to Puerto Rico, and you know it's different. I'm a member of Congress, and so there's a it's a it's a, it's a different reality for me. The uh, uh, the uh, Barack Obama wrote a book called Dreams from My Father. It was really about his search for his identity. Was there an element of that for you? Did you find? Uh, your identity uh, during those six years uh, or so, I think it was six when you yeah, went back yeah. to Puerto Rico. Did you come back to Chicago as a different person? Yeah, I did. And here's here's why. Because it was also as negative as I portrayed it and as painful. It was really emotionally painful. Um, I met Puerto Rican teachers. I met a Puerto Rican mayor. I met Puerto Rican police officers. I met Puerto Rican doctors, lawyers, engineers architect. So all of the sudden, all of the things that I was limited in seeing and my potential, right? From Chicago, I said, wow, man, Puerto Ricans can do all of these wonderful things. I had never met a Puerto Rican teacher in Chicago or a doctor or anybody that was, how would you say? So my role model was my dad that went ferociously to drive that cab and my mom that woke up at 5 o'clock to go to Advanced Transform. They were my role models. Yeah. Excellent role Admirable. models. Admirable. Yeah. Yes, very. But not professionals but not in prof- that sense. And so now mm-hmm. I saw I was limited. And plus, living in a small town, you want to get out. So how do you get out? You go to college. So I don't know. So many of my friends didn't go to college, David. They didn't. They, you know, in 70, 71, you graduated from college. You went to Helen Curtis to shipping or uh, Motorola or Zenith or some company, and you got married. Lots of kids did. Lots of young people did that. Um, I didn't, right? I went to college. Lastly, I wrote, um, so I wrote an autobiography um, several years ago. And in writing it, I went to interview my dad. And uh, anybody that suggests that they remember everything, you better check with all your friends and contemporary of the moment because you might not get it right. And as I was interviewing my dad at the end, he said, I just want you to know, because I know you're going to complain about when I brought you here. You wouldn't be who you are today had I not brought you to this island. Your proficiency in Spanish, your understanding of the idiosyncrasies of who we are have allowed you to be successful. And I said to myself, wow, he was right. It really did allow me to have another layer, right, and another exposure that a Puerto Rican kid growing up in Chicago. So when my opponent decided in 1986, right, Harold Washington was for me, Edward Oliak, and a lot of people was for Manny Torres. And Manny Torres goes to debate for Alderman. Alderman. We're going to get to that. And and, and, And he starts speaking in English. I knew at that moment the kind of sin (laughs) 
that he had committed, uh-huh. whether it's political, but even it, yeah, cultural, you you, yeah. culture. You just don't do those. I remember because uh, I was uh, uh, at that point. I had left journalism and I was working for Harold, uh, and I remember uh, that. That was a huge deal. His inability deal, to speak just, uh, speak Spanish. It was just it, it, it. You know, all he had to say, just for your radio, all he had to say is, "Yeah, my Spanish isn't that good, but don't I sound like your grandson? Don't mm-hmm. I sound like your nephew? Don't I sound like your children who never had the ability?" Yeah, Gutierrez got his fancy Spanish over here. He wants to impress you with it. That's what I would have done. And yeah. you know what? In Puerto Rico, they would have said, "Ay, bendito." Pobrecito, look at him. And I could have just seen the tears flowing, but he didn't. He was arrogant. He was mean. And he wanted to say to white ethnic population, I'm going to speak English. Um, before we get to that, because that's a rich story, that whole period in, in, in Chicago, you, went, you came back here and you became an activist, a student activist. Yes. Uh, is that because you saw the disparity between this world that you had come from in Puerto Rico where there were all these opportunities and you came back to Chicago and you confronted the same city that you had left? Here's what happened. So when I go to Puerto Rico, it's interesting. The uh, the Commonwealthers, right? Those that believe in the Estado right. de Asociado, the, the current The age-old right. debate in Puerto right, Rico. Right, in Puerto Rico, the Commonwealthers, right? Kind of middle of the road. Uh, they're... Uh, they were friendly, but not that friendly to me when I arrived in San Sebastián. The statehooders, who you would have thought would have said, hey, they speaks English, were some of the – they really treated me very poorly. Interestingly, the people that treated me the best were the independentistas, those that were advocating for independence because they saw me as a product of the colonial system, of some of my parents having to leave the island of Puerto Rico. And so I was part of that diaspora, and they were welcoming me back what? To the fatherland, back home, as kind of this prodigal son that is gone and now has come back. And so they taught me about, I mean, poetry and history and the economics of the island and our history, and they really embraced me. So what does that mean? That means that I was putting up posters. I was campaigning for the Puerto Rican Independence Party. Uh, Ruben Berrios was this dynamic young leader of the. It's 1972. Remember, for those who can't remember, it was the first year that you could be 18 and vote. Uh, so you want to talk about young people having the opportunity. And then I come back to Chicago, and I go to Northeastern Illinois University, and I see, and I'm just. Here's what happened, David. I'm a senior now. Most of the kids, the Puerto Rican kids that are going to Northeastern, they can barely get through their freshman year, much less make it to a senior year. So I'm an anomaly, right? I'm, I'm a senior. I'm going to graduate. And I see that I have a responsibility to lead. Um, so I take over the student newspaper, que sola. I become president of the Puerto Rican Student Union. And interestingly enough, yes, did we advocate for more professors of Latino studies? Yes. But you know what our greatest triumph was? Harold Hill, Dr. Harold Hill. Dr. Harold Hill was an English professor who saw that the Puerto Rican students were not going to survive unless we enrich their English language, basic English language skills. Hmm? And, And so in the English department, they wouldn't give them tenure. Because he said, oh, you're spending too much time teaching grammar and syntax, right? And, and spelling and basic English. And we're the English department, right? And we fought for him. And they developed a wonderful program for him. Uh, and he spent the next 30 years there teaching English and making sure that students, you know, um, uh, the Supreme, uh, Puerto Rican Supreme Court Justice, um, she writes in her book, that she confronted the Justice same... Justice Sotomayor. Yeah, if you read her book, her autobiography, she's going to tell you that when she arrives, she says, I can't compete. So our greatest triumph you know, was English. I have to tell you that I had the honor of working on her confirmation when I was in the White House. And I'll never forget, I, I asked her, "What is, or do you have concerns about this? What worries you about it? And she didn't hesitate. She said, my concern is not measuring up. And she and 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 she knew also that she would 
that there'd be a lot of people watching her, uh, including a lot of Puerto Ricans, yes, uh, who uh, would want her to succeed. Right. And I had a real feel for the burdens she carried uh, into this. And of course, she more than uh, she more than measured up. You know, because I have never met anybody in such a position of power and authority conduct herself so humbly yeah i mean and yeah she you know i sent her emails because there was remember when barack obama did daba right and they it went to the supreme right and and they were challenging it and and i sent her an email and i said i can't get in so i'm trying my puerto rican connection she emailed me back she says you got a seat my brother like yeah. that i mean uh, yeah supreme yeah. court justice just talking uh, me to me no, in the she, vernacular she, she she never lost the south bronx she never no. lost her puerto rican no. No. uh roots which is why she has added something to the court a beautiful a beautiful uh, beyond beautiful. her legal acumen yes. but and you know so but returning to to your story so when did you make the turn was it Harold Washington that drew you into local politics yeah. so i was anti elections anti politicians anti registering to vote until Harold Washington ran for mayor of the city of Chicago and i went to northwest hall on north and western avenue it was cold it was damp it wasn't you know it wasn't a nice place right But he came in and he electrified the place. And I remember the one thing he said. He said, the police shot Cruz and Osorio in the back. I will not allow the police in the city. And I said, what? He's challenging the police. This was a a young man. So Cruz and Osorio were, Mr. Cruz and Mr. Osorio were shot in Humble Park by police officers. There was a... There was a great uh, outcry of our community of the injustice for a mayor of the city of Chicago to come to my neighborhood and to know that and you know, to speak to that. I want to. I want to <laughs> tell you something. Uh, just an aside on that. In 1977, I think it was a 77. There was a and Harold ran in that race, but uh, he didn't. Obviously, that was just a lead up to what he was going to do. Uh, there were riots in Humboldt Park. You 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 I may remember, remember that. Yes. Uh, Right before a mayoral election, uh, and there was there, the riots were rooted in discontent about a variety of issues, sure. including policing. Uh, and a few days later, there's a primary, and Mike Belandic, who was sort of the machine candidate, got maybe uh, 400 votes to six per pre- precinct. And it was really kind of astonishing that the machine held such control over those it, neighborhoods. But there clearly was something welling up uh, there that the, the dam was going to to break eventually. And Harold uh, represented that Harold break. Harold represented that for me. And so think of young people, right? I, I, was, I was young. <laughs> I was young then. I was young. I was in my 20s. We all were, my friend. (laughs) You know, I had just bought my house. You know, my wife and I, we just had our first daughter, right, of two gorgeous daughters that we had. And so you're thinking Mork and Mindy. I call it my Mork and Mindy. Why did I say that? Because you kind of put your 40 hours in at work. You buy your six-pack of Old Style on Friday. You you play some dominoes <laughs> on the weekend. You see the latest movie. You know, and you hang out with your friends. And what's a celebration? Somebody gets married. There's a baptism, right? Mm-hmm. That's your life, right? And paying the mortgage and watching this old house so you could fix your house, right? I mean, that was my life. It's a good life, right? But there was nothing external. From that life, right? The, the rest of the world, you were isolated from the rest of the world in terms of what is important to you. And what Harold did was broke that down, right? And so when Dan Rostenkowski, Congressman Dan Rostenkowski, was the committeeman of the 32nd Ward, I lived in the 32nd Ward. So just before you get to that sure. committeeman race, you worked for Harold in your in your community in in 1983 when he won right. Harold Washington was I should explain was a congressman from the south yes. side and, and really a unique political figure I covered we'll him ne- as a reporter we'll ne- we will never for him see later, the likes again but but a big garrulous yes witty, witty you know used smart. humor like a bludgeon uh or maybe a stiletto i guess is more like it but just a a really charismatic guy and he won this improbable race uh for mayor in 1983 
toppling, you know, a huge barrier in the city. Uh, and a part of the impetus for his victory was he got strong support in the Puerto Rican community. He did get strong support in the Puerto Rican community because the Puerto Rican community has a rich history of 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 how would I say acknowledgement, acceptance, and embracing of our African culture that makes part of who we are, right? Roberto Clemente is our hero. He's Puerto Rican. He's also black, right? So, you know, Harold Washington was, and if you go to New York City, right, and you go to Manhattan, on one side of Harlem, it's Spanish Harlem, and on the other is black Harlem. I mean, well, you we, know, we, we, we have, we well, have a history of The interesting thing about living. it is that Chicago, unlike a lot of other cities at that time, had a very uh, well-established uh, uh, Mexican community and Puerto Rican community. Yes. Those communities were not, uh, they were not. aligned politically. Uh, those uh, those uh, Mexican communities tended to be much more associated with uh, machine candidates, white machine candidates. Puerto Rican community went with Harold. They and, did, and it, he won by a you know relatively he narrow did margin. Good. If you remember um, uh, from the primary to the general election, the one vote that's, that that opened up that is about twenty percent of the Puerto Ricans voted. Uh, for Harold Washington in the primary. Right. But then he went to 65, 70%. You didn't see that kind of swing among white voters or among African, African Americans were with them in the primary. Yeah, yeah right, right, right. So you saw that swing. But just very quickly, so when those precinct captains knock on my door, they asked me to put an Epton poster in my window. We should explain Bernie Epton was the <laughs> Republican candidate running against Washington and and what you're saying is a Democratic precinct captain. Democratic who, precinct who uh, from that, a, that it got me registered to vote because it got me my garbage can that always used to come and ask me to vote for the aldermen and Democratic candidates. Right, punch ten. I, right, if yes, I remember, yeah, yeah. vote Democratic all of the time. Yes, now they're asking me to support a Republican because Bernie Epton had a salient quality that was most <laughs> important to them, which was he was white exactly, and so yeah. it was Bernie Epton before it's too late. To ask right. me that was his slogan, Bernie Epton. Before it's the too late, former the former student leftist, right, who is now in his Mork and Mindy stage of his life, married, right. To ask me, it was so insulting that I said, "I have to do something," right? I have to do something, and I or, I went down to Harold Washington campaign office. They gave me a poll sheet, and I said, "Teach me." I I didn't know. I said, teach me, how do you do this? And then I called every one of my friends that I'd gone to college with. And one of them said, well, don't, I don't know if I have time. Don't ever talk to me about apartheid again. And, you know, <laughs> you know I, I knew where they were at politically. You know, you have an opportunity to do something. So what I did, I believe, happened hundreds of times over. Mm -hmm. People like me who had never been involved in politics learned how to do it, right, got our friends engaged. And Harold won, and it was exciting when he won. It was it was an incredible story. I had the opportunity to write the story for the Tribune that night, and it was <laughs> you knew you were writing a, a, a piece history. Of, of history. We're going to take a short break for a word from our sponsor. We'll be right back with Congressman Luis Gutierrez. So now, I think the first time I met you. I met you at a restaurant called Counselor's Row yes. across from City Hall yeah. uh, in 1984, yeah. and you pulled up and you parked your cab. You were driving <laughs> yeah, a cab, cab. Yeah. while you were running for ward committee yeah, against, against Dan Rostenkowski, yeah. who was, you know, by then, you know, at Very that time, powerful. Yeah, one Chairman of the, of the real pillars, yep. uh, powerful in Washington and powerful in Chicago. in Chicago, because, of course, in Chicago being uh, award committeeman is more powerful than being chairman of the Ways and Means Committee. But, but uh, the ignorance of his power was bliss, right? It allowed me to run against him recklessly. I didn't know I was going to. I thought I was going to win. Yeah. I, mean, I was for Harold Washington. I was for truth, justice, and the American way, right? How could I lose? Well, they only beat you, what, seven to one or something <laughs> yeah. like that? Yeah. Yeah. So, but you... Uh, but. But you persisted. You, you Ultimately, you took a job in the Washington administration. What happened was Ernie Bearfield called yeah. me was it that. The mayor's was chief the, of staff. The mayor's chief of staff called me that summer and said, come on down. Uh, the mayor would like to talk to you. I was like flabbergasted. I said, really? And I went to see the mayor, and he told me, there's enough time between you running against that Rostikowski and me being able to bring you into the fold. 
And I understood that he was the chairman of the Ways and Means Committee. You know, Harold was the mayor. It was still a necessary relationship that he yeah. needed to have. And, like, hiring somebody that just ran against him for committeemen, you might need a cooling off period. And he hired me. He hired Jesus Garcia. He hired mm-hmm. Juan Velasquez. And he these gave, were all independent. These were all independent candidates for right. non-traditional from the Democratic Party. Jesus and Garcia, Chuy Garcia ran Chuy, for mayor. Just ran for uh, mayor. Against uh, Ram. Right, against Ram. Election. So that's who we are. And you know what? I got to tell you, David, um, he, he gave us such freedom because I would talk to a commissioner or a deputy commissioner and I would simply give him my card. And it said administrative assistant, mayor's office. I didn't give him my card. I said, if you have a problem with what I'm telling you, then I'll have to tell the mayor. And I'll, I'm just going to go back upstairs. And, and they knew that he had people like me and others. And we were your ultimate uh, do-gooders, right? You, we, were, we were very, very, very straight. And in Chicago, I'll have to, ta- I'll have to tell the mayor has a heavy implication. Very heavy implication, yeah. especially when they know when you have this little card and they're looking at you. And, and so I, I got to tell you, even sometimes when I would go back to meet, uh, when I would go out to streets of sanitation and they'd, they'd ask me questions, I said, do you really want, I mean, do you really want me to answer? The point is he gave us such freedom to yeah. reform and to look and, and, and to, so I learned a lot during those two years. So, so you referenced earlier this uh, aldermanic race. We yes. ought to set it up a little for people sure. from other places. That back back then there was a, uh, an organized resistance to Harold Washington after he got elected mayor. Uh, you mentioned a guy named Ed Verdoliak. He was the uh, leader of the group in the city council, all white, basically all white, yes. uh, one Latino who re- who resisted <laughs> who resisted uh, uh, Washington, and and uh, it's a little bit like. Washington, you know, uh, has become where there was an organized resistance uh, on almost every everything, every issue. Uh, on, and the break came when there was a, a court-ordered uh, remap. Yes, uh, based on lawsuits that had been filed. And seven city council seats were going to have special elections, and one of them was in the twenty-sixth ward, yes. which was. Uh, partly old old line white ethnic and yeah. and and a very growing uh, Puerto Rican community. Yes, very and true. And you were the Washington candidate. Verdoliak had his own candidate. This guy Manny Torres, the uh, Cook County Commissioner, uh, Spanish challenged candidate. Yes. You mentioned yes. uh, earlier. Yeah, he was a Cook County Commissioner. And this thing was a titanic struggle. Everybody knew that the control of the city council yeah. would largely rest on the result in this one yes. particular ward. So, like, holy hell broke loose yeah, there. Yeah, I did. And, 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 and the mayor campaigned with me uh, sometimes twice a week. I mean, literally walking up and down the streets with me. And it was wonderful having him. I quit my job at City Hall because that was the mm-hmm. right thing to do. So I resigned so that I could campaign full time. And we campaigned, and he, you know, I got to tell you, did he help me immensely? He helped finance my campaign, um, but he gave me guidance, he gave me energy, he gave me focus, plus I wanted so much to be the last vote to take down this racist resistance, this Verdoliac 29, that they called it Beirut on the Lake, uh, Chicago, and I wanted to take it down, and and I remember, I remember he was such a, I remember the night before I won, he called me up and he said, Lou, do you have everything you need? And I said, yes, Mayor. He says, anything you want to say, last thing? I said, yes, you didn't have to be on a split screen on CBS with Edward Oliak. I said, I said that that's you're the mayor of the city of Chicago. He's nobody. I remember. So they were arguing that. about the your they were race, arguing about my yeah, race. Yeah. And I said, you know, yeah. So the thing you missed though is that he enjoyed nothing more than arguing <laughs> with Ed Verdolia. That was know, his but, favorite sport. I know, but you have to say, I had such love for him and admiration mm-hmm. yeah. that I saw. I, I didn't want to see my my guy have to. And you know what he told me? He said, he said, oh Luis, I wanted to make sure everybody knew. Who to vote for tomorrow? That's why I got into that. So he yeah. made me laugh. So what happened was, uh, you ended up in a very close race. 
uh, and um, uh, some additional votes for a third-party candidate showed up sure. mysteriously that robbed you of right. a majority. So I won by 11 votes. And then 11 votes showed up three weeks after the election in the basement of Cook County Jail, where they held the boxes. And they opened the boxes. Some judge ordered all the boxes open, and they found 11 write-in ballots, exactly the number to cause a tie, right? And then we had to do it all over again. Quite a coincidence. And I still remember walking with my lawyer from the courtroom as we were walking across across the Chicago River uh, back to the IBM building. And I told him, I said, we lost in court. They counted those 11 votes. We're going to have to do it all over again. And I remember him saying to me, he says, oh, yes, we lost in that. But we won in a more important courtroom, the one of public opinion, yeah. which is the one I wasn't lost on anyone. It wasn't lost on what, anybody what that had happened. been robbed. Yeah. Right. It reminds me of a, when I was a young, really young reporter in Chicago. I had a mentor who was an old organ, machine guy. And um, I won't go into the details of what the story was I was working on, but I said to this guy, what, what happened? That was an open and shut case. And the guy said, look, if you're going to work in Chicago, you got to understand one thing. There's no such thing as an open and shut case here. <laughs> so uh, yours was not an open it and shut. It wasn't an open and shut case. They, caught, they, they, they counted the votes, and we had to do it all over again. And I still remember uh, when I walked out of the courtroom after they counted the 11 votes and said we were going to have to do a redo, and the reporter said, how do you feel? And I said, we, I, I don't know. We don't have any money. They have all the money in the world. I'm broke. I'm already in debt. They know we can't compete. They've, they've destroyed us. I, econom- I said economically. Now, by the time I got to my office on Division Street, this is there were lines of people. Yeah, Harold was so loved that if they saw somebody like Luis Gutierrez saying, I'm broke, <laughs> they were going to show up with the money to say, no, you're not. And there were factories on the south side. I remember going to a factory on the south side, all black workers, all making contributions and say, you got money. You keep going. Yeah. He was such a beloved figure. Yeah, and you won uh, decisively. Oh, yeah, like 900 votes. Ed Verdoliak at 7.05, five minutes after the polls closed, declared me the winner. Vote seven? Not happily. But, uh, not happily. Yeah. But why did he know that? Because at 6 o'clock, the predominantly white ethnic precincts had all voted. At 6 o'clock, you went to Humble Park. There were lines Mm -hmm. of African Americans and Latinos in line. So you knew who was voting in that election. I just want to ask you one more question about that that period. You had your own organization, your own independent mm-hmm. democratic organization. You once told me a story that's such a classic Chicago story that I, I have to ask you to sure. repeat it. And if you can't remember it, I'll, sure. I'll, I'll repeat it. Okay. But uh, shortly before Harold Washington died, uh, Jane Byrne, who had been the mayor, he had, she'd come back to try and unseat him in 1987. Mm-hmm. He beat her, uh, got reelected. And he and she decided she was going to run for a local office, clerk right. of the circuit court, right. and uh, and she he and uh, Harold Washington endorsed this woman, Aurelia Paczynski, who came from a long line of Northwest that. Side, so yes. white ethnic politicians. And your organi- you your organization, you you always voted on who the organization said. <laughs> right. right. As you explained it. Right. You said to the organization, we're going to vote our conscience like right. we always do. You right. write down who you're for. I'm for Aurelia Paczynski right. because that's who the mayor's for. And, right. and you made a speech for him. And then what happened? And then they voted for uh, they they voted for uh, for Jane Byrne. Right. <laughs> you, yeah. You said you opened up one ballot after another ballot. Burn, burn, burn. And then what did you do? Um, I don't tell me what. Yeah, I so did. this was. So you told me that, and I believe this, right? Louis, tell me because I know you that you took these ballots and threw them in the garbage and said, now we're going to revote our conscience. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know what? I do remember being and being for Aurelia Paczynski. And I also remember visiting Jane Byrne at, in her apartment on, on 111 Michigan. East Chestnut. Yeah, yeah, I remember going to her apartment and sitting down there with her and she telling me that she wasn't this bad, terrible person. And I was listening. But look, we were going to do what the mayor of the city of Chicago was going to ask us to do. And there was no way. But a lot of the people in my organization, they had jobs that once upon a time were given to them by Jane Byrne. Byrne. And there was still the old 
yeah. allegiances and alliances to that. And that wasn't... But, but you got your consciences aligned on that Right, one. but that, that wasn't the only time I had. I mean, I, I also had... I mean, when I endorsed Daily in 89... Yeah. Well, I want to ask you about that. Oh, I endorsed Daily in 89... Uh, because uh, I, because a lot of uh, it, it was he was running against an African American mayor and there there's another African American candidate who was close to Harold Washington Tim Evans right. it was a huge political story in Chicago when you endorsed it was Rich very Daly. It was why did why did you why did you do that can I tell you something because I went out and I said to everybody I said look if it was wrong. To run twice against the Democratic nominee, once in the Democratic primary, and then take another shot as an independent. I said, I just became the Democratic committeeman. We just had a fight over this stuff. So now it's okay because it's two shots for an African American to take over. If I'm going to support somebody in the Democratic primary, I'm going to What you're saying is Tim Evans was running as an independent. An independent. That's who a lot of progressives A and lot of progressives, and I understood and- that, and I said to them, listen— let me just tell you one thing. I have been to barbershops. I mean, it's, it's this very old-fashioned way of doing things. I went to barbershops, right, in my district. I went to, uh, not supermarkets, but little grocery stores in the neighborhood. I went to the guy that fixes your bicycle, and I went around, and everybody was for daily. Now, could I have stood tall at that moment and said, uh, regardless? I could have. But here's what I saw. I saw a candidate for mayor who was ready to sit down and discuss the future of the city of Chicago. And you know what? In the end, in the end, David, everybody that said I had made a mistake by the end of he was had, had endorsed them and been with them, including Miguel Del Valle, mm-hmm. uh, who ran with him as his as his partner for city clerk. Mm-hmm. So when you take that, who had moment, been a part of the independent movement, and he was and he was mm-hmm. part of the independent. He was with Evans. So there were things that happened. Not but, to not to take a cynical sure. view because I you know I worked for Rich Daly and mm-hmm. I believed he could be a bridge in a city that was deeply divided. I think he turned out to be that, but it didn't work out badly for you because when redistricting came, uh, a new district was created. A congressional district in 1992 that was the first majority Hispanic district. And I bring it up because uh, of this issue we raised before. You were a Puerto Rican candidate, but half your district, mm-hmm. I don't know what the exact percentage was, were Mexican, mm-hmm. Uh, mm-hmm. Mexican-American Mexican mm-hmm. uh, residents of Chicago. Um, was that the impetus for you to become the sort of voice on immigration reform that you became? Excellent question. Look, in 1992, in March in the primary, if you would go to a precinct on the north side where it was predominantly Puerto Rican, it would be 278 for me and three for Juan Solis. That was your opponent in that the was my opponent. primary. You go to the Mexican, you go to Pilsen or Little Village, predominantly Mexican-American, it's 273 for him, four for me. I mean, it was that dramatic, right? Puerto Ricans for the, mm-hmm. the, the, the Hispanic candidate of Puerto Rican descent. And so there was a big divide. So that election actually was decided not by the Latino community because we split. Uh, but then the 11th Ward. Which was Daly's was Ward. Was Daly's Ward, and I won by 70%. Yeah. And, and, they had a gift for that. They had yeah. a gift for that. Yeah. And, I, and, I, and I went on to Congress. Now, the first thing I realized was that I had to bridge that gap. I'm happy to say that my percentage of my vote is higher in Little Village, in the Mexican, um, some people say because the Puerto Ricans know me better, uh, than on the north side of my congressional district. So... You can go to any part of my congressional district and you will see broad support. So I had a Mexican-American candidate, very well-funded, Marty Castro, 2002, had over a million dollars, made sure he told everybody he was Mexican-American. Maybe he looked at the results from 92. And I crushed him by a larger percentage of the vote in the Mexican community than in the Puerto Rican So guess what? Now as a community of people, we really do speak with one language. And, and, and it's wonderful and I'd like to think... Uh, that in great measure, what I did 
was how 50,000 people become citizens of the United States in my congressional district. Yes, 50,000 people. We know it's more than 50,000, but I remember getting to that goal of 50,000. And, and when you are part of someone's life, you know, that, that chapter of their life, when they go from, you know, immigrant, foreigner to American citizen and raise up and you help them fill out those papers, there is a relationship that's really lifelong. And that issue became the one, I mean, you were involved in, you've been involved in many issues now. You've been there for 23 years or something. So I've been 25 years in Congress now. 25. So, exactly, I didn't do the math for a while there, but... uh, I lived them, so I count them. (laughs) (laughs) But you, uh, you're probably uh, as identified with this issue as any member of Congress. Sure. Um, And... uh, Let's talk about the evolution of the issue. There was a time uh, in uh, uh, during the Bush administration uh, when it looked like there was an opportunity for comprehensive sure. immigration reform yes. uh, past the Senate, uh, there but was. not but not the but not the House, not the House, um, uh, and and then uh, uh, President Obama took office. Uh, you had you were pretty critical of him. I was, and talk a little bit about that. All right, so what? I mean, for me in my life, I still remember Barack Obama is a freshly minted U.S. senator, and it's November. It's late November, early December, and he says, "I'm going to Hawaii," which was no surprise to me because everybody knows he goes to Hawaii mm-hmm. for Christmas. And he says, "When I come back, I will have decided whether or not I'm running for president." And I like to ask you if I decide to run. Whether you're gonna, whether you could support me or not, and of course, I've been around the block a few times, so I'm like, I said, that's cute. I said, you've already decided you're running for president of the United States. You just want to make sure Luis Gutierrez in your own backyard isn't going to stick a you know a knife in your back when you start. And I said to him, I said, well, you know what I represent. Now remember, when he was a U.S. senator. He would frequently talk to me and other members of the – I mean, he kept in constant contact and phone calls. What do you think I should do? Always asking very – I felt very, how would I say it, honored and, you know, humbled that he would call me up, a U.S. senator. He might be the freshman U.S. senator, but it was nice. So we would talk all the time. And he said to me um, – he said to me, of course I do, because a few months before, he had voted for the fence, for George Bush's fence – between the United States and Mexico. And he had called me and said, I had a lot of trouble with the Latino community because I voted for the fence. And we called this big meeting together, about 200 activists. You never report, you, you don't know about it. Nobody knows about it because we kept it internal to our community. We had a great degree of respect and love for him. And we saw him as a freshman senator mm-hmm. that could make a mistake. And we, so we didn't see malice in his action. Um, And after that meeting, I think we became even closer, right? Because I remember him telling me, he says, at the meeting with the activists, you are going to sit next to me, Luis. I said, I will move from that chair. Anyways, I told him, yes. I said, I said, you know, I, I said, I said, Senator, you know what I want? And he says, yeah, you want comprehensive immigration reform. I know that'll be a key issue for me. And I'm going to get it done the first year. Uh, and I was excited, and I said, let's go, and um, I told him absolutely. He came back from his vacation, gave the speech. Was it down in Springfield? Yes. I gave the speech down in Springfield. Were you down I was, there? It no, was, I didn't go very, down there. You were smart. It was very cold. <laughs> it was pretty. It was freezing. It was day. freezing down there, yeah. but I was, I was for Barack Obama for, uh, for president of the United States, and I remember going back to the Hispanic caucus, and they were all looking at me. I guess you got to be with your senator, because they were all for, for Hillary Clinton. They were all for Hillary Clinton. And I said, yeah, I'm for Barack Obama. And in the end, I want to say this. Yes, the majority, the vast majority, I know people, the vast majority of Latinos voted for Hillary Clinton. And yet, in the general election, an overwhelming, even higher percentage of Latinos voted for Barack Obama to send him to the presidency. So I'm going to brag about the Latino community. They can be for one candidate in the primary, and then, you know, be very, very loyal and stick with the party and with the vision and with the values in the general election. Yeah. Um, And, you know, I remember you chaining yourself to the White House fence a a few times. A couple times. And 
and you know, I'm not going to make the counter argument about what Obama faced and right. in terms of trying to implement uh, these things, but um, it brings us to today. Mm-hmm. And um, l- let me take a short break, I guess, before we we get to that. We'll take a short break because this is a an involved discussion. Okay. Uh, and we'll be right back with Congressman Luis Gutierrez. So we went through the Obama years. Yes. He tried to pass the DREAM Act. Yes. Uh, got 55 votes, I think, in the Senate. We actually passed it in the House of Representatives in November of, uh, of 2012, right? We had just lost the majority. No, I'm sorry. So it had to be 2010, right? This to 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 protect these young to protect the dreamers. These young we had we young, had we had kids we had, came over with we had gone and, and we said, if you came when you were younger than 16 with your parents undocumented, we were going to say we're going to protect you um, as children uh, that came here. So it's the Dream Act, and um, we passed it in the House of Representatives. And it got 50 – it couldn't pass cloture because even Republicans who were original sponsors of the DREAM Act with Dick Durbin, his original sponsors, bipartisan, voted against cloture. I mean mm-hmm. that just tells you how difficult it is to work in a bipartisan manner many times in Washington, D.C. So we didn't. And then – because he came to see us. So I went to see him. You're talking about the president. I went to go see the president. So we lost the majority in the House, mm-hmm. and we're weaker in the Senate. And the president calls me and another group to the Oval Office. It was a very generous <laughs> meeting at the Oval Office with us. Um, and he said, all I can do now is protect you and protect immigrants. I want you to put your thinking cap on as we go for the recess for the crystal. And when you come back in January— Bring me your best ideas of how I protect immigrants because we now know we don't have a majority. And and so I did. And I came back. It was February of 20, uh, 2012, right? Um, I'm sorry. I can't remember. 20, mm-hmm. 2011. And I go back and we meet with uh, Bill Daly. Mm-hmm. He's the new, chief, new of chief of staff. New chief of staff. And I go with Senator Bob Menendez and we argue for prosecutorial discretion. You know, Barack, uh, President Obama's first response was he wasn't a king. He wasn't a, you know, a dictator. He, he couldn't just do it all by himself. We continue to say, yes, you can do these things. And in June of 2012, he signs the executive order of DACA, which is, uh, which is basically the DREAM Act in, affirmative, in, in an executive order. Today, just so that we see the success of that, 800,000 young people who arrive as children in America today have a work permit, today have a social security card. They are, in the city of Chicago, they are doctors, okay? They are school teachers. They, 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 are, they are in all the facets of our daily life, 800,000 people. That's a legacy that Barack Obama did leave, right? And, he, and now Trump, here's my prediction, will rescind it, revoke it, before September 5th, when 10 U.S. attorneys have said, 10 Republican U.S. attorneys have said, if the president does not rescind that executive order by September 5th, we're going to a judge and we're going to ask the judge to find it unconstitutional and revoke it in the court. My prediction is probably Trump will will rescind it or revoke it before that. That is the danger, of course, of executive orders is that they only uh, are as durable as the president who issued them, and they can be reversed. I know Senator Durbin and Lindsey Graham have now, uh, and and probably in concert with you, have uh, revived the notion of a a DREAM Act. Does that have a chance? Well, here's what the president, the the president's administration, as soon as they introduced it in a bipartisan manner, they said, we're for deportation. In other words, we're for enforcement procedures. We don't want to discuss uh, procedures of legalization. Um, That was their response. I, uh, because in, here's what happens. Here's one of the, when you do things in a bipartisan manner. So in the House of Representatives, the same DREAM Act, the Senator Durbin and Lindsey Graham was introduced. I didn't introduce it because to introduce it 
was for me to find one Republican, and then any time a Democrat could join the bill, I had to find a Republican. So I told Nancy Pelosi, our leader, and Steny Hoyer, this is no way for us to speak to a community in need, saying, well, we don't have a bill or a proposal that saves you you know, from the president's action because we can't find Republicans to join us. So I drafted a, a, another bill. It has a hun- got 113 sponsors at introduction. So that's our dream. We don't want to call it the Dream Act because, you know, that's that's something that belongs to Senator Durbin. But it does all of the things that the Dream Act does. Well, but what are what are the practical uh, chances of this? And I ask you as someone who I remember standing here in this city with Speaker Ryan before he was Speaker remember Ryan. Remember that? Uh, who, calling for comprehensive immigration reform together. What, what, what a change. He stood here in the city of Chicago with me. He had just run for vice president of the United States of America. It was the spring after the November election that he lost. And he was for immigration, for for a pathway to citizenship, for the DREAM Act. We received him here with mariachis. It was a festival with Ryan here. And today he stands uh, doing nothing. Because the Republican, what unites the Republican Party is being anti-immigrant. It is the one thing that unites them across the board. And he's not going to counter that. When he ascended to speaker, his first commit public commitment was to never bring immigration for a vote to the House. Why? Because the radical right of the Republican Party that controls the House of Representatives, 2025 of them, right? They know that any day of the week, any hour of that, any hour, if you propose immigration for it, it'll pass. There are enough Republicans and Democrats to pass. They will never give you a vote. They did it to us. Remember, 69 senators in June of 2013, under the leadership of Barack Obama, passed comprehensive immigration reform. We never got a vote on it in the House of Representatives. Never got a vote. Had we been given a vote, we would have gone to conference. And, we, and President Obama would have signed the bill. They never give us a vote. So it isn't that the majority of members of the House of Representatives aren't for it. It's just there's no political will in the Republican Party to allow a vote for immigrants. That's unfortunate. Senator McCain just said that he uh, uh, would like to revive an effort at immigration reform. Is that uh, hopeful, wishful thinking on his part? Could that be reconstituted? <sighs> I, you know, I'm, I'm not. I will. If he calls a meeting, I'll be there. Um, I think part of leadership is especially when it's very, very dark, to have hope and to see light at the end of the tunnel. And if you can't see that, then maybe you should. You have to be realistic. You have to be honest. But you always have to give an opportunity for success. Because if you don't, then you're doomed to failure, in, in my opinion. Even as, 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 as difficult as it may seem to be. So I've worked with Senator McCain for now for 15 years. He has a real commitment to immigration reform. We introduced the bill in 2004. I did it with Senator Flake. I mean, he was Congressman Flake. It was Gutierrez Flake in the House, and it was Kennedy uh, and um, McCain McCain in the Senate. We introduced the bill. It was the first bipartisan, bicameral bill uh, in modern times. You know what? Uh, There are enough votes to get it done. And there are other people like Lindsey Graham that will do the immigration bit. But they won't give us a vote. And I don't think they're going to give us a vote. And I don't think this president's going to give us a vote. And I wouldn't be surprised if he says he'll... he'll. Because, look, David, he walked down the escalator. And you can go to YouTube. Don't take my word for it. Go and refresh your I, memory. I think I remember. And that, it's like, yeah. like within 15 seconds, he said... Mexicans are murderers, rapists, and drug dealers, and yeah, there's a few good ones, but we have to get. I mean, that's. I mean, you remember when Barack Obama said that that cop uh, hired. Uh, he, there was a policeman who went and like arrested a Harvard black yeah, Harvard professor, Gates, yeah. and he had to go have beer with him on the lawn and make up that it wasn't a racial incident because the president defended a black professor against, uh, you know. What clearly to most of us was was excess of the police department, but this man gets to repeat it at nauseum. You know uh, General Kelly because he ran yes. uh, Homeland Security. Yes, uh, 
for the first seven months before he became yes. chief of staff. How would you assess uh, the way he ran that operation from the standpoint of the immigration issue? And, and how do you assess him generally? Well, I don't think he knows what he's doing. Uh, I think uh, he has absolutely no understanding of the Department of Homeland Security. He may be a great general, but he, has, he knows nothing about the Department of Homeland Security. He said to me, he said, well, Luis, all my lawyers are seeing, saying to me that the president's executive order on DACA, on the Dreamers, is illegal. I said, well, I know four really great lawyers who don't. And he says, who would those be? I said, four Supreme Court justices. He says, this went to the Supreme Court? I said, yeah, it was a, it was a, yeah, four in favor and four against the President Obama's executive. He didn't know that. Then he says, well, you guys should fix this legislatively. And I told him that I introduced in a bipartisan manner right after the election and the first weeks after the election. He didn't know about the legislation. Then the last thing I told him, stop the deportations. And he says, those are court ordered. I said, Mr. Secretary, you have the power using your prosecutorial discretion. You are deporting people, some of whom have been reporting to your Department of Homeland Security for 10, 11, 14 years. Barack Obama instituted and really broadened prosecutorial discretion. So there are literally in America today, yes, hundreds of thousands of people that do have an order of deportation that's being held in abeyance, right, using prosecutorial discretion because they have American citizen children. I'll give you Mrs. Lino. She must leave on the 23rd of August, David. She has six American citizen children and she has an American citizen husband. A lot of people say, how could that be? Well, because she entered the country illegally, yes, and there's no way to fix it. So the way the administration fixes is say, well, this is an injustice and this is something unfair. We're not, we don't want to separate her from her six Americans and her husband, American citizen husband. So we're going to let her stay. For 14 years, she's reported. So what does the general do? He orders her through deportation. So look. He keeps telling us, oh, I like the dreamers. You know, I'm the only one standing between their deportation because everybody wants them deported. And then he says, but that's going to be held in the hands of, of Attorney General Sessions. And I looked at him. I said, do you really understand, Mr. Secretary, what you're saying? Do you understand? He says, well, he's a fair man. I see he's a fair man. He is the most ardent anti-immigrant senator. And I said, and Cotton and Purdue are all they're doing with their new legislation, immigration, is, you know, to me, well, they're, they're, they're like in general legal casting. Legal immigration. Right. Yeah. Legal immigration. You know, they're in general. So I told them that. And Senator Bob Menendez was there, David. Mm-hmm. I said, Senator Bob Menendez put 69 people together. I said, so you're clearly telling us. And that's what I made the call. I walked out of the room. And there were a lot of press out there. And I said, we have to get ready for them to revoke this. Because Senator Sessions is not going to defend us in court. A couple of uh, a couple of short ones here. The you're going you have a budget come a fight coming up. Mm-hmm. Uh, the administration apparently uh, is going to insist on money for the wall that the president has promised across the border. Uh, some have suggested that could trigger a shutdown of the government. What's your position on that? I got to tell you, given past budgets. And the reliance on the Republican Party on a large, substantial number of Democratic votes. Um, you remember under, uh, under Barack Obama, mm-hmm. it happened on a few occasions. They're not, if they include a wall, I, I just don't see that. The Democratic caucus in the House of Representatives and the U.S. senators would basically have to turn their back on a key constituent group, right, which are Latinos, and on fairness and justice. Because it's immoral to talk about that wall. I mean, you remember what I told you. So what, what you're saying is, if if they insist that that, that I, there, I, there, I, there won't the, be the, the, the there the, won't be the votes, there the won't be the, the votes, government. there won't be the funding for the government because we're not going to fund. And I am going to insist that Democrats look, David. Democrats have to be consistent. You know, if this were for defunding Planned Parenthood, we wouldn't even have a question of Democrats sitting down and negotiating for that budget. If this were to eliminate same-sex marriage, we wouldn't have a conversation as Democrats whether we were going to vote for that budget. I mean, there are things that Democrats, you know what, if it's for deportation and splitting up families and destroying the dreamers, Democrats have to say that's a line we won't cross either. That's a key fundamental value of our Democratic Party. And, 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 you know, and I think we're going to meet that challenge. I really do believe we're going to meet that challenge. Uh, 
last last question and uh, uh, Puerto Rico let's go back to where uh talk about the state of Puerto Rico now obviously huge financial problems what's the way forward for Puerto Rico wow i think the way forward for look regardless of how you see the situation in Puerto Rico when you impose uh la junta which is called in Puerto Rico uh when you impose this board that's unelected and unaccountable to anybody Here's what I like to say. Can you imagine Illinois? We had to run our our state finances, and four Republicans were in charge to three Democrats on a seven port. We would never allow that to happen. That's what's happened in Puerto Rico. So look, the, the, the bondholders are going to get paid. They're already closing down nearly 200 schools, right? Uh, they're talking about a cut of 25% to every pensioner in Puerto Rico. Um, they're 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 gonna they're gonna they're they're shutting down hospitals. They're gonna pay the debt, and there's nothing. And the governor of Puerto Rico says, "Oh well, I'm gonna stand up to them." You can't stand up to them. People hearing this program, Puerto Rico is a colony of the United States of America. Why do I say that? Because it is under the territorial clause of the Constitution. Go and check it out. It is a possession. It is property. And the sovereignty over Puerto Rico rests in the Congress of the United States. Now, this radical independentista is not the one who's claiming that, although I have for the last 40 years. It is Republicans that pass PROMESA, which is the act that sets up the control board in Puerto Rico. They said, we can do this because you are our colony, you are our possession, and we don't need to consult with you. So I was saying, well, welcome. You know... If I had said those things in 1950 in Puerto Rico, I would have been locked up under La Ley de la Mordaza, which was our Smith Act in Puerto Rico. So, look, I think the way forward is to talk about jobs, 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 jobs. We never – you know what people fight about? Can we fight about who's going to get more food stamps? Who's going to get more money for health care? Who's going to get more Section 8 voucher? Those things are important, David. But you do not create an economy – Right. Out of assistance from the federal government. When is the federal government going to talk about creating jobs on the island? So we eliminated Section 936 of the Internal Revenue Code that allowed pharmaceutical companies to establish themselves in Puerto Rico, that allowed all kinds of companies to establish. And they created hundreds of thousands of jobs. So what so what we have to talk about is, you know, if you want to more towards independence, if you want to move towards statehood. If you want to move to a greater autonomy, you need a sustainable economy. And I want to talk about what brings dignity and self-respect to people. You know what that what brings that? A job where you go out and earn a living. And too many times, it's the culture of colonialism in Puerto Rico that prevails. And I want to have a debate about jobs. And if we can have that debate about jobs, then Puerto Rico can, can, can work itself. Lastly, look, why is it? that everything that enters Puerto Rico and exits Puerto Rico is under the Jones Act of 1920. And I'll explain it too. That means every ship has to be American-made and every ship has to be American-manned by American citizens, right? So if you're in the Dominican Republic, you can get a, you can get a, a ship, right, from a Central American country. So it, there is a huge cost, right, to the Jones Act, and to having the U.S. merchant marines be the only vessels that allow merchandise to be shipped from Puerto Rico or shipped into Puerto Rico. That's colonialism. And you know what it adds? It adds about 20 cents to every dollar of, of, of purchasing in Puerto Rico. So, so what do I want? I want a revamp of the economy of Puerto Rico. I believe in independence for Puerto Rico. But I know that I need a strong economy. Here's what I... I go, if you went to Puerto Rico, how the hell is it that we're still using and importing oil for our electrical system? When the sun rises on that island every day, okay, there's a few days that it rains, but virtually every day. And the wind flows from the east coast to the west coast so, every day. Why aren't we harnessing that energy? Why, aren't we, why don't we have an agricultural system in Puerto Rico that produces what we eat? We can do it. I... Uh I have to ask you, 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 you obviously 
have a little energy and passion left. Well, but I should ask about it's, it's your. I, I should start. ask about your your own job because we're coming up on filing now. Yes. Uh, and is it your intention to keep on going? Yeah, I I have petitions out there. I just ordered them yesterday. I sent my voter registration card. Uh, I met with uh, Indivisible yesterday. Mm-hmm. Great group. Wonderful yeah. group. I met with Indivisible on Northwest Side and Humble Park Indivisible. I met with the Berwyn, Riverside Indivisible. It's good meeting with them. I met last week with a wonderful group of 40 people. in the. So you're running, basically. I'm, I'm, I have petitions ready to go out uh, the day after Labor Day. All right. And the energy to pass them. Too. Well, you know, I, I know I got it. But it. It, no, it's, brother, it's, I... It's where I start. I'm, when you talk about, it's where I start. You I know, gotcha. My island, my people, yeah. that, it's an important place for me. And it's going to be a place, when I look at the last chapter of my life, I want to make sure there's a chapter that allows me to return and do good things. Some of the things that I've just talked about allows me to contribute in that manner to that island of Puerto Rico. Luis Gutierrez, always good to be with you. Thank you, David. Thank you. Thank you for listening to The Axe Files, part of the CNN Podcast Network. For more episodes of The Axe Files, visit cnn.com slash podcast and subscribe on iTunes, Stitcher, or your favorite app. And for more programming from the University of Chicago Institute of Politics, visit politics.uchicago.edu. Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com.